The late bloomers tend to have more curiosity. They tend to have more resilience. There are stories and mythology that this country has woven around black men. What if everything we've been taught is just all wrong? What's worth more than this fear right now? And that rising after failure is part of the glory of being a human being. Listen to deeply personal, insightful, and thought-provoking stories from the world's leading thinkers and doers. Listen and subscribe to The Unmistakable Creative wherever you get your podcasts. This season of Strong Opinions Loosely Held is brought to you by ESPN. Saturdays are for college football, apparently, and Saturday, December 29th is the Saturday of all Saturdays. It's the college football playoff. Who's playing? Great question. It's Alabama versus Oklahoma and Notre Dame versus Clemson. Those are all colleges, by the way, and they've got really good football teams. And they'll all be competing for the national championship. It's on ESPN, and it's streaming live on the ESPN app. Watch it. But only after you've listened to this season of Strong Opinions Loosely Held. Believe me, it'll be a whole new experience. Welcome back to Strong Opinions Loosely Held. I'm Elisa Kreisinger, and on this episode, I'm looking at the state of pay in women's sports. I am a huge women's soccer fan. And if you're like me, you've noticed that the U.S. women's national soccer team is really good. Like, hands down, they are the best in the world. They've won four Olympic gold medals and three World Cups. And despite bringing in more money and winning more games than the men's team, they are paid nearly four times less. But two years ago, the team made headlines when they started a very public fight for equal pay. And since then, they've emerged as role models and resources for other women's teams, like the WNBA and U.S. women's hockey. Actually, it sounds like U.S. women's soccer gives really good advice because U.S. hockey quadrupled the players' salaries and provided them with the same travel amenities and insurance as the men's team. The WNBA also negotiated better standards for hotels, travel, and trainers. Now, teams from around the world are reaching out to the U.S. women's national soccer team for help. Coincidentally, they've all seemed to be paid less than their male counterparts. Why are female athletes paid less even when they perform better? And how much better could they be if they had basic accommodations, like, say, extra legroom on flights to games when you're over six feet tall? Is this just good old-fashioned misogyny? I asked sports writer Brittany De La Creta. My name is Brittany De La Creta, and I am a freelance writer who focuses on the intersection of sports and gender. I think you raise an interesting point when you mentioned misogyny being at the root of this. Awesome. And I was reading about a WNBA player named Laisha Clarendon. She plays for the Connecticut Sun. And a lot of WNBA players play overseas in the offseason. It's how they make most of their money because their salaries are so low. And she chooses not to do that. But she has to practice at a local gym where her three-pointers hit the ceiling when she shoots them. And she has to sweep dust off the court in order to be able to practice. And thinking about an NBA player would never have Mm. to put up with that in order to try to train for their season. U.S. women's national baseball team, which most people don't even know we have, prepares for international competition by begging high school baseball teams to let them practice with them and by taking batting practice off of tees in their backyard. 
it's embarrassing. And the fact that they are as good as they are and are competing at the level that they are, despite all of these systemic barriers, I think speaks to a testament. It's a testament to their talent, their determination, and and what they're already overcoming just to even get to where they are. And the amount of skill that they have organically without resources. You can only imagine what they would be like with resources. You know, uh, Brianna Stewart, who was the MVP of the WNBA this season, made like $50,000, $60,000, something like that. Not a lot of money. But they're not asking for salaries that are, you know, the equivalent of LeBron James. They're asking for a, you know, percentage-based salary. This is the best women's basketball league, and this is where they want to play. And yet they have to spend their offseason not resting, but playing overseas where they make most of their money. Their salaries are, you know, sometimes five to ten times higher than they are for the WNBA. So you mentioned that players play overseas to make money to kind of sustain themselves throughout the year in the U.S. Do players make more overseas? Like, why— And I guess my follow-up question to that is, like, why do other countries support women athletes more than we do? They're paid pretty well overseas. I think that there is more respect for women's sports in other countries. But in the U.S. in particular, it's all wrapped up in misogyny and the idea that women are not as good at sports, that they are not as impressive as athletes— Women's sports are second tier. They're kind of a consolation prize for a lot of people. They'll watch them during the Olympics, maybe, but they aren't considered the main event in the U.S. The good news is that this is changing, thanks in part to the model that the U.S. women's soccer team created. After a huge win, stick together and ask for more. I know the U.S. women's national hockey team won a gold medal at the Winter Olympics this year, And they made headlines by essentially boycotting the world championships because they banded together to ask for more money. They were receiving $1,000 a month as a stipend for their six-month training period, Uh, and this was the women's national team. We've also seen the U.S. women's national soccer team band together and rally for higher pay as well. They had won a World Cup. They drew higher numbers and were better players than the men's U.S. team, and they weren't getting nearly as much money. And so what we are starting to see is this ripple effect through women's professional sports where the athletes are starting to band together and demand better and more for themselves, and we're seeing that now with the WNBA players opting out of their collective bargaining agreement this season as well. In November of 2018, the WNBA opted out of its collective bargaining agreement. Now, for those who don't know, a collective bargaining agreement is basically a salary and benefits negotiation, and it gave the WNBA an opportunity to ask for more. The WNBA's union president said, quote, This is not purely about salaries. It's about small changes the league can make that will impact the players. This is about a six foot nine superstar taking a red eye across the country and having to sit in an economy seat instead of an exit row. We just want what we're worth. We just want what's right. End quote. This year, the top base salary for the WNBA was $115,000. Now, this lags far behind the top European and Chinese women's leagues, where many of the top players can earn $500,000 or more. 
This means that many players play pretty much year-round. They'll go overseas when the WNBA season ends here in order to make their money. Some American players skip the WNBA season altogether, like Diana Taurasi. She set out the 2015 season while earning more than a million dollars in Russia. Now, if exporting our best female basketball players overseas because they don't make enough money here isn't infuriating enough, the NBA has a minimum salary of half a million dollars. They're not asking for salaries that are, you know, the equivalent of LeBron James. They're asking for a, you know, percentage-based salary. This is the best women's basketball league, and this is where they want to play. And yet they have to spend their off-season not resting, but playing overseas where they make most of their money. Their salaries are, you know, sometimes five to ten times higher than they are for the WNBA. A lot of female athletes' endorsements and sponsorships is how they're going to actually make their money. And that then comes down to being conventionally attractive and, you know, being able to look hot for a straight male audience. I spoke to an Olympic track athlete once who told me that she considers looking good on the track before a race as part of her job. So when she's training for a race or she's getting ready to compete in the Olympics, she's not just thinking about how she performs on the track. She's not just thinking about how fast she is or how high she can jump. She is thinking about how her hair is styled and how her hair looks. She gets a manicure before race day. She wears makeup on the track. And this is all because her financial success hinges on getting endorsements and advertising deals when the Olympic Games are over. So how many men are considering grooming and makeup and nail polish as part of what they get ready for on game day? I'm going to guess not very many. So in order to be financially sustainable and to sustain yourself in the sport, you have to look consumable. And white. Yeah, and you're right when you say that whiteness plays a factor in this. A very mediocre, I mean, any elite athlete is elite, but in, you know, the realm of competition, a mediocre white athlete who is, you know, considered pretty and, and blonde and thin might get sponsorship deals. But in order for athletes of color, women of color, and particular to get those same deals, they have to be absolutely exceptional at what they do. And that is because of the value placed on whiteness and Eurocentric beauty standards. I mean, until a couple years ago, the WNBA required makeup classes for their rookies. Oh, my God. I think particularly about baseball here. They say, I just want to play ball. And you can go back to the women who played in the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League, which is the league that the movie League of Their Own was based on, and they played in skirts, and they had to wear lipstick on the field. And, you know, looking at it from a modern lens, I thought, I, I can't believe how oppressive this is. I can't believe that must have been awful. But when you read interviews with the women, they were just so glad for the opportunity to play ball, and that's all they wanted. They would have, you know, they would have played in underwear if that's what you asked them to do. And, you know, there are actually is a semi-pro tackle football league where women play in their underwear because that's what they're willing to do to play this, the game that they love. It's unfortunate that that's what female athletes have to do in order just to play and respect is like secondary. 
And this all comes down to demand. Is there demand for women's sports? There's little demand for women's sports in theory because there's little exposure to women's sports, and that gets back to the media. There's hardly any media coverage of women's sports, and so a lot of people that could become fans of it don't even know it exists, or if they know it exists, don't know it's as good as it is. But the numbers tell a different story. And the numbers tell us a very different story. There's little demand for women's sports in theory because there's little exposure to women's sports, and that gets back to the media. There's hardly any media coverage of women's sports, and so a lot of people that could become fans of it don't even know it exists, or if they know it exists, don't know it's as good as it is. Right, yeah, it's it's cyclical in that way, in that if you don't know it's there, how can you become a fan of it? Right, and something I think about a lot is When we look at the way media coverage works, for example, if you go to the Washington Post's sports section, they have a menu bar at the top that has all the teams in the D.C. area. They have the NFL team, the NHL team, uh, the MLB team. They're all listed up there. And if you went by that menu bar, you would think that there were no professional women's sports teams in the D.C. area. And that's not true. There's the soccer team and a WNBA team. And they don't even get a drop-down bar on the menu. We need more exposure to it. And I think what we're starting to see is that it works. I think it's, first of all, it's a mistake to assume that only women want to watch women's sports. ESPNW, only 28% of their audience is female. Hmm. So more than 70% of the people reading about women's sports on ESPNW are men. So there is an audience there, and I think the WNBA is a really, really good example of watching its growth over just the past year has been incredible. Uh, Viewership is up almost 40%. Their merchandise sales are up almost 50%. And a lot of that has come with increased media exposure and NBA players who are actively tweeting during the playoffs and talking about how great the WNBA players are. And it's also unfortunately taken male sports writers to really commit to getting into the WNBA and watching it and getting their followers excited about it. And I say unfortunately because I don't, I hate that it takes men saying these women are amazing, you should watch them to get people to watch them. But at the same time, that's the reality of the world we live in and we can use as many people to be excited about this as as we can get. Sports resonates with women for the same reason that it resonates with men. It's If you like sports, it's so much fun, I think, to watch people perform these superhuman feats of athleticism. I love that. I don't think there's anything quite like, you know, watching a really close basketball game and there's a shot, you know, down to the buzzer. It's amazing. So it's exciting in that way, and I I think that women, you know, feel the same way about it as men do. 
yes, women want to watch women's sports and might be more engaged in women's sports if they knew that there was access to it. But it wouldn't just be women. There are so many men who don't even have the opportunity to know that they could be fans of these sports. I think the Portland Thorns, which are a National Women's Soccer League team, are a really good example of this. Their attendance is, like, incredible. They get more fans at their games than NBA teams and some of the NHL teams. They're packing the stadium, and part of that is because they are playing at the same place as the men's team, and if you buy a season ticket package for the men's team, it includes the the women's games also, and it turns out that people who like soccer want to watch people who are good at soccer play soccer. And so the fans are showing up regardless of what gender team is on the field because they want to watch people play soccer. Sports don't exist in a vacuum, so they reflect other larger issues that are facing society. is a three-time WNBA champion. She has two Olympic gold medals, and after 15 years of playing in the WNBA, she recently retired to become the director of franchise development for the New York Liberty. I talked to her about what it was like to fight for equal pay now as a retired player and as an athlete. I just want to start off with talking a little bit about your experience in the WNBA. What was that like fighting specifically for equal pay? One of my experiences, I would say, in the WNBA, I played 15 years and spent most of my time on the executive committee. And so I went through two CBA negotiations. And a lot of times we weren't only fighting to get the most that we could as far as compensation for the ladies. We also were fighting for all those intangibles that people don't necessarily think about, um, whether that's certain health care benefits, whether that's 401k, whether that's having your employer be able to match to a certain extent. So obviously we weren't as big as the MBA, but we were fighting for the most and the maximum that we could get potentially within our league. And a lot of times we just think about the wage uh, and the pay, but a lot of times those those other things are just as important because you have to have the ability to be able to go in there and negotiate, uh, whether you're with a union or you're just an independent contractor or you're an employee. And I think women have to obviously know the numbers and know what the statistics are and have that as a tool to be able to go in and be able to fight for what you you want and to fight for your worth. And for those who don't know, what does the pay gap and that disparity look like between the WNBA and the NBA? Those are numbers right there. I don't even know if you want to really do uh, the comparison, but I would say this. Keep in mind that you're talking about a robust league, uh, one of the best sports leagues in the world in the NBA. And I think if you, whether you're a fan, whether you're a business person or just an athlete, you understand that women, we're not going to get the same pay right now as the men. But just to give you an example, uh, a rookie coming out of college that may be seven or 18 years old, whatever he gets paid in his one-year salary could pay for the whole 12-woman roster of a WNBA team. So, for instance, if a guy's getting paid, 
you know, $3 million out of college. He was drafted in the first and second round. The max salary for a WNBA player right now is $115,000. As we continue to make sure that the business makes sense for the WNBA, we also have to continue to, to talk about the things that the men are getting that the women are now talking about, whether that's they want to look at revenue sharing, whether they want to go through this new CBA and talk about increasing some of the health benefits or the 401k, like all those different things come into play whenever you're going through um, a CBA negotiation, which the, in the WNBA and the Players Association will be going through in the next coming years. That CBA is the collective bargaining agreement that we mentioned earlier in the episode. I think the WNBA, as it's going through now in a leadership change and also with the female athletes opting out of the CBA, it gives an opportunity for both the WNBA and NBA and also the players to sit down at the table and figure out what makes sense as they move forward. We actually, I had an opportunity to interview the commissioner, Adam Silver, and he was adamant that he, he believes that the CBA negotiation will get done with the players, but he wants to make sure that the players feel just as engaged as the staff does or the league does um, and their commitment to really just moving this league forward and having a robust WNBA. And so that was very encouraging to me to make sure that uh, someone like Adam Silver, who has one of the, you know one of the best jobs I think in all of sports, he is just as committed to making sure that the women are able to get what they're worth. And I know you're not really on the outside because you still work with the WNBA in a big leadership position. But is it easier for you to have those conversations now, retired but still in the game? I would say that I was more, when I was younger and going through the CBA negotiations, when you're in the trenches, you're fighting hard and you you don't care. I mean, you're not thinking as much about only the business side. You're fighting and advocating for the players. Well, I've got an opportunity to come to the business side and to see the numbers, to see where there are areas for us to to increase or to be better in order to help the players. So I think the best thing for me is to now have that experience of 15 years advocating on the player side to be able to come to the league side and now say, hey, as a, you know, someone in the front office as a team and someone that can speak to the league that I have a really good kind of background on these issues and I'm able to advocate in a different way, in a more smarter way, and to be able to sit down at the table and to have everything in front of me and advocate from a position of having knowledge on both sides. And I think that is definitely something that's been very helpful, I would say, to to not only the New York Liberty, but also to the WNBA in, as a, in a whole. Your experience is so unique, and you you have that on-the-ground, real-life training, and now you're behind the scenes. Well, that's one of the reasons why I wanted to go into the front office is because, for instance, the WNBA is only about 23 years young, I like to say. And I knew at some point um, people would always say, well, the women graduate from college, they have degrees before they come to the WNBA, so they'll always have something to fall back on. But what they don't keep in mind is that because women are not getting paid as much in the WNBA, a lot of female athletes play year-round. So they go from playing four months in the WNBA to then playing all the rest of their off-season overseas. So let's think about a college graduate that's coming out of college at 21, 22 years old. You're starting into whether it's the corporate world or starting your career path. So you're building up whether you come in and at the mailroom, then you're building up to possibly one day become the CEO. 
Well, for female athletes, you're training for, like you said, these moments your whole life or you're playing in a league for 10-plus years. Well, when you finish, you're 31, 32 years old, and then you're trying to now go back into the workplace. And it's harder at times to get those jobs because you're not going to have the same work experience. Some companies don't understand how being an athlete and the disciplines and everything you have to have to be great or to be excellent at your sports, how those are transferable skills now into a position, whether it's in corporate America, whether you have to then become an entrepreneur. So there's so many things that female athletes are behind the eight ball, I feel like, that that's one of the reasons why I wanted to go into the front office to say, hey, let's continue to have career building and help these female athletes while they're still playing in the WNBA so they, they can have internship opportunities, so they can get exposure or experience going on set if you want to get into film or if you want to get into the corporate world. Let's form those relationships to help players. Uh, and I think that is something that the NBA over the last, I would say, seven or eight years have has really put an emphasis on. And that's why you see so many former athletes that are now, uh, and not only uh, male athletes for a long time were doing it, but now the female athletes are getting opportunities to now, whether it's come in the front office or coach in the NBA, that's because now the, the floodgates have opened a little bit and they realize that we have to have these opportunities and create these opportunities for the athletes. You mentioned earlier in your answer that there are players who are playing year-round uh, in other countries in order to sustain themselves. And I'm wondering what are the unique issues facing WNBA players that perhaps aren't facing NBA players? I think one of the things that I look at that face female athletes is the commitment that people, this is, <laughs> and this may be a little controversial, but I have to say it anyway. I look at the time period we're in right now where people are saying, this is the year of the women. Women are now, whether it's going into politics, women are saying we want our voices heard. And that's great. But I always feel like when it comes to the WNBA that there's we're always left behind just a little bit where the WNBA would be thriving and even be more successful if the same women that were committed to women's rights and that were committed to advocating for women were also supporting and coming out to the only professional league in the world that has the best players. The WNBA, hands down, is the best female basketball league in the world. And we have players all over the world that come to play in our league. But I don't feel, whether it's from a corporate level, whether it's from um, a support level, that we have enough women supporting women. And for me, as a woman of color, I think it's important that we have these safe spaces to have these conversations. I've said it before all the time that, you know, the WNBA is – predominantly you have probably a majority of the women who are African-American women. And so we have these questions again of why aren't they getting the support? Why aren't they getting the support? And I think you have to go a little bit deeper, not only on the wage gap, but go a little bit deeper and say, how does our society or how does race play a part in this as well? I don't look at it as, well, people don't like our league because we have too many African-American women. What I say is, why don't people want to promote our league in a way that it could be promoted? We have some of the most amazing women who are not only business women, college graduates, their advocates, their um, mothers, um, everything that you could be looking for to have a partnership with a woman, I feel like is in our league. You have the U.S. women's uh, Olympic team 
who has won six gold medals. It's like insane in a row. And you look at how many of those women on those teams are partnered and out there being advertised or commercialized or getting those opportunities some of the men are getting or even some of our female counterparts. There is money to be made there if we could all get over our collective misogyny and racism. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> you pretty much <laughs> just summed it up. But I think that you just can't say, like, I've, I used to hear it all the time. People would say, oh, you're so pretty. I can't believe you play basketball. And I'm like, well, what does a basketball player look like? Well, what, like <laughs> that doesn't make sense to me. Or they would say, oh, well, I heard that, you know, if you're a female athlete, that that means that you have to be gay. And my response is, one, what's wrong if somebody is gay? And two, like, what does that what does that have to do with how great of an athlete that I am? So if we get over those things um, of worrying about somebody's sexuality or their race or any of those things, and we get to the core of who is a great person who can represent my brand? Who is a great person that's out there doing amazing things that I think the country or the world needs to see? Who do I want to partner with that are just really great people? Like, that's what I'm hoping that we can get to in those rooms of people who are making those decisions. This season is all about supporting female athletes. So if you want to keep up with Swin, you can find her on Instagram. And she also just launched a new podcast, She's Got Time. I really hope you enjoyed my conversation with Swin and Brittany. I would love to hear your thoughts on this episode. I'm at PopCultPirate on Twitter and at PopCulturePirate on Instagram. And make sure you use the hashtag SOLH. This episode was produced by Annie Taylor and edited by Priscilla Mina for Refinery29. Meg Weck was our researcher and we recorded with Paul Ruest at Argo Studios. Stay tuned because up next is part two of this episode, my conversation with soccer legend Abby Wambach. 